Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to what is really the book of beginnings. That's what the book of Genesis means. And chapter number one in the book of beginnings. We're involved in a short series of messages we have entitled Relationship Status. And last time, Pastor Mark took us through the relationship of singleness. Now, today, we're going to talk about marriage. And I've entitled the message today, Living Large in Marriage. Now, by the way, this is a message for everyone, not just for those who are married, but we all need to better understand marriage. So we have this title, Living Large in Marriage. Now, that term, living large, is a popular cultural expression of our day. You might hear that phrase, living large, in a pop song or a rap song. What does that phrase mean? Living large. Does anybody have any ideas how it's defined? It really means, when you speak of living large, to live extravagantly or to maybe be self-indulgent or to live a luxurious lifestyle. So when I talk about living large in marriage, I'm not making reference to marriages ought to be pursuing a luxurious lifestyle. I'm not saying that marriages ought to be self-indulgent. I mean, most of us are aware that marriage is more about giving than receiving. What do I mean when I talk about living large in marriage? Well, before I clarify that, I want to talk a little bit about our culture right now. Our culture in marriage, our culture has a very sour, unpleasant view of marriage. Why is that? Because so many people grew up in homes where there was a troubled marriage. More and more have experienced the pain of divorce and the pain of broken homes. And in increasing numbers today, our young people are saying, you know what, I think I'll just opt out of this thing called marriage, this growing, sour, and unpleasant view of marriage. Now, part of the problem in people having that view is they don't really understand the way marriage was designed. Marriage was designed by God to be a triangle relationship. See, the world is trying to live the marriage thing on the horizontal plane. You have a husband and you have a wife, and it's just about the two of them. But marriage was designed by God to be triangular in nature. And the idea is that God is involved in a relationship with the husband and the wife. And as a husband and wife, watch how this works, begin to grow closer in their relationship with God, what ends up happening to them as individuals, as married partners? They grow closer to one another. And part of the reason why there's such a sour and unpleasant view of marriage is that people don't understand the triangular nature of it can't just live it on the horizontal plane, even though people are trying. And part of the problem, the reason why people have a sour and unpleasant view of marriage, even actually goes back to the church of Jesus Christ. Because even inside the church, people have a tendency to live the small story of marriage rather than the bigger story of marriage. Even in the church, people can be in their marriage living small rather than living large. 
Now, when I say living the small story of marriage, I mean this. The small story of marriage says, it's about me, it's about me, it's about my needs, it's about my happiness. This is the small story of marriage. And when you're living that small story of marriage, many people have this expectation. You know what I'm expecting? I'm expecting a non-stop sense of pleasure, positivity, and happiness. That's why I got married. But when you're living the small story of marriage, it leads to disappointment and frustration and conflict and hurt. But people live the small story and then they come to a conclusion that the problem isn't with them, the problem is with marriage. Now what I want to do today is I want to expand our thinking Today, I want to share with you the bigger story of marriage. I want to talk about living large in marriage. And here's what's interesting. When you grasp the bigger story, it is very motivational. You grasp the bigger story of marriage, your passion will be deepened, your energy will be strengthened, and your ministry vision will be broadened. I don't think I have to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Marriage is designed by and defined by God. He is the one who invented it. Almost all of us know what it is to have an automobile. You have an automobile, and you want to enjoy all that that automobile is designed to be. From time to time, you must consult the manual. There are maintenance issues you need to be aware of. There are certain features. They're getting more complicated electronically these days, and so From time to time, you consult the manual. Well, if our marriage is going to be all that it is designed to be, from time to time, we must consult the manual. We need to understand about maintenance issues. We need to understand all the features if we're going to enjoy all that marriage was designed to be. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three divine purposes for marriage. It's part of the bigger story, living large in marriage. And the first purpose is, of marriage designed by God is to mirror God's image, to mirror God's image. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, it says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The idea here is that together, this was, by the way, the first marriage, together they would mirror and reflect his image. My wife and I met in college at the University of Nebraska. We got married in Lincoln, Nebraska, but we didn't know where we were going to spend our honeymoon. Uh, We were poor. Actually, we were below poor in those days. And so we found out that her aunt and uncle had a cabin uh, in Colorado on Lake Dillon. And so we got in our car after we got married, drove 535 miles, eight hours of travel time, and we went to Dillon, and we had a cabin right on. You have a picture there of Lake Dillon, and you see the mountains in the background, very beautiful on certain days. You have the the clouds in the sky, and you'll notice that on the the placid Lake Dillon there, you see the mountains and the clouds being reflected back. What a beautiful picture that is. You know, the moon reflects the light of the sun, right? 
Well, the idea is that your marriage and my marriage is to be like the moon. We are to be reflecting the sun, the S-O-N. And our our marriage should be a reflection of his character and his compassion and his love and his patience and his forgiveness. Now, I want you to picture that we're at that scene right there where you see the mountains and the clouds being reflected in in the surface of the lake there at Lake Dillon, and just picture you have a rock maybe the size of a softball, and you know, you stand in there on the shore, and you just kind of heave it right out into that image. What's going to happen? It's going to mar the image, right? By the way, that's what sin did in this very first marriage. We're in chapter one, but by the time you get to chapter three, a rock is thrown in to things. And what's interesting, that marring of the image, you can track it through the book of Genesis. I don't know if you've done that in a while, but just look at what happens in marriages and families in the book of Genesis. It's a little bit like the Jerry Springer show as you work your way through it. That's because sin is marring the image. But here's what I want you to understand. The purpose still remains for marriage, that we are to mirror God's image. You uh, can keep your finger in Genesis if you want. I want you to go in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians And chapter number five, Ephesians chapter number five, if you're using a Bible under a chair in front of you, you would turn to page 153, you'd be at Ephesians five. But in Ephesians five, it's probably the longest section that talks about this principle in the New Testament or even in the Bible. Verses 22 to 33 are talking about marriage and husbands and wives. And I want you to see this principle, how it's in here about how we are in our relationship to be reflecting the image of God. In verse 23, we won't read through it all, but it says, as Christ, so ought we ought to be in our marriage. Verse 24, as the church, a picture of the church and Jesus and Jesus and the church. Verse 25, just as Christ. Verse 27, presenting the church. Verse 29, just as Christ does. There's to be this reflection of the relationship between Jesus and the church and the church and Jesus that's going on in my marriage relationship. And then look at verse 32. It says, this mystery is great. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. My personal marriage is to reflect the image of God, to be a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and the church and the church and Jesus. Are you kidding me? My marriage? But that's what it's saying. Now, all marriages, of course, fall short of the standard of God. I mean, Janet and I have been married for 44 years. For 23 years now, we've been part of the presentation team with Family Life at the Weekend to Remember Marriage Seminars and and Marriage Getaways. And uh, I will tell you, Janet and I, All those 23 years we've been doing that, leading in that way, we've had arguments and disagreements and frustrations with one another because sin has tainted us. We have different personalities. We have different preferences. I just want you to know that we, Janet and Bruce, are not the model of perfection. If you doubt that, just speak with my wife. She will clarify that rather quickly. But here's what's important. When you grasp the bigger story of marriage... It makes a motivational difference. See, we're thinking about, wait a minute, we're modeling and mirroring God's image. And if you are here today and you are married, I want you to know that there are more people watching you than you could ever imagine. 
If you've got kids, they're watching you. Your kids' friends are watching you. Your relatives are watching you. Your neighbors are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. Your fellow students are watching you. In fact, this church family is watching you if you are married. Why are they doing that? They are wondering, can this thing called marriage work? Does this thing called marriage work? How does this thing called marriage work? I've shared this before, but do you know the difference between a felt need and an unfelt need? You should know the difference between those two. An unfelt need is a need you don't know you have. A felt need is a need that you know that you have. And our culture today has a desperate felt need. They're wondering, can this work? Does this work? How does this work? Why are they wondering that? Because they have understood by experience that when a marriage craters, a family craters. And if enough families crater, then a neighborhood craters, and then a city craters, and then a state craters, and then a society craters. They know that inherently. Can this work? Does this work? How does this work? See, we, we can live in marriage, the small story, it's just about me, it's about me, it's all about me, or maybe I'm going to include the other person, it's about us too, just us too. Or we can embrace the bigger story, we can be living large in marriage, realizing that part of the purpose of us being married is to advertise and model God's character on this planet. So the first purpose of marriage is to mirror God's image. There's a second one we want to look at today, and that is to mutually complete one another, to experience oneness and companionship, and to grow deeper spiritually, individually and with each other. I don't watch a lot of romantic movies. We do watch them from time to time. I'm not a huge fan of romantic movies, but one of the things I've noticed is that most romantic movies all have the same ending to them. They end with the wedding. And you know, you get the idea that, wow, there's the finish line, you get married. Probably my favorite romantic movie is the, the movie Hitch. And if you've seen that movie, you know that there's two different couples in there and there's all these twists and the turns and everything that's going on in their relationship. And the movie ends, of course, with a wedding and then a celebration and dancing afterwards. It's probably my Favorite scene of any romantic movie is the dance scene at the end of the movie Hitch. It's amazing how much there's that stress on being married as the finish line. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, and here's the subtitle of the book. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Part of the purpose of marriage is to mutually complete one another. And the truth is, men and women, that the wedding day is the starting line, not the finish line. Back to the book of Genesis in chapter number 2. I want to read verses 22 to 24. Genesis 2, 22 to 24. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man 
And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I want you to look at that phrase, one flesh, in verse 24. It means more than sexual union. It means developing an interdependent relationship where both of the partners are growing and developing and deepening in their life. It's the iron sharpens iron principle at work. And Gary Thomas in his book on sacred marriage makes a great observation. And what I want to invite you to do is I want you to just listen to this. And if it helps you to close your eyes for a moment, go ahead and do that. And he's going to talk about what commonly happens in marriage. So even if you aren't married, you would get some benefit from this preview. But if you are married, I want you to just think about it. And he's going to talk about four different responses that happen when this occurs in marriage. And I want you to just be thinking about which one of those four would describe us. So just listen. He writes this, I think most of us who've been married for any substantial length of time realize that the romantic roller coaster of courtship eventually evens out to the terrain of a Midwest interstate. Long, flat stretches with an occasional overpass. And he says, when this happens, couples respond in different ways, four ways. You're thinking about yourself if you're married. When this happens, number one, many couples will break up their relationship and try to recreate the passionate romance with someone else. When this happens, number two, other couples will descend into a sort of marital guerrilla warfare, a passive-aggressive power play as each partner blames the other for personal dissatisfaction or lack of excitement. When this happens, number three, some couples decide to simply get along. When this happens, number four, still others may opt to pursue a deeper meaning, a spiritual truth hidden in the enforced intimacy of the marital situation. It's a fascinating phrase he uses there. The enforced intimacy of the marital situation. What is that? What is the enforced intimacy of the marital situation? How does it work? Well, I believe that Gary and Betsy Rikushi summarized it well in saying it this way. One of the best wedding gifts that God gave you was a full-length mirror called your spouse. Had there been a card attached, it would have said, here's to helping you discover what you're really like. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Why do you think in a marriage relationship designed by God, we're so different? Why do you think we're, we're so different as male and female? Why, why do you think we're so different in personality? Why we're so different in background? Is that just sort of an accidental thing that God didn't see coming? 
No, it's part of his plan to stretch us and to grow us. When you get married, you get a full-length mirror. And you have to learn some things about yourself and deal with some things you maybe never would have dealt with any other way. You know, when I, when I got married, I, I had to learn some things from my full-length mirror. I had to learn that my facial expressions often look far more intense than what I feel. I probably wouldn't have known that any other way. I, I, I learned from my full-length mirror that changes in voice tones, even if they're not highly different, can bring a strong emotional response in another person. I learned that from my bride. I probably wouldn't have learned it any other way. You know, I have an ability to think fast on my feet. I've had a lot of training in communication. When you can think fast on your feet and you know a lot about communicating, you know what I learned is that you can swelch the opinions of another person pretty quickly. I learned that from my full-length mirror. One of the wedding gifts, the best ones that God gave you was a full-length mirror called your spouse. Had there been a card attached, it would have said, here's to helping you discover what you're really like. And, And we know everyone brings weaknesses and poor attitudes and selfishness into a marriage relationship, but marriage forces us to face the character issues that we may have, that we might never otherwise even deal with. Marriage is a crucible where we really learn how to love, where we learn how to trust God, where we learn how to grow in godliness, and we all need to do that. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8, godliness is a value in every way. And at the core of godliness is unselfishness. And there's no better crucible to learn to grow in godliness and unselfishness than marriage. See, we can live in the small story of marriage. It's about me, it's about me, it's about me being happy all the time. Or we can look at the bigger story, we can live large in marriage, realizing it's about me developing spiritual character. It's about me deepening my spiritual walk. It's about me in that triangular relationship growing closer to God and therefore closer to my spouse. First purpose is the purpose of mirroring God's image. The second purpose is to mutually complete one another. The third purpose we're gonna look at today is to multiply a godly legacy. To multiply a godly legacy. Genesis chapter one. And verse 28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not with just any type of people, but with a spiritual legacy. I mean, a home, a married home is an incubator for the next generation. If you have kids at home right now, I want to remind you that you're not just raising children. You are raising child raisers. Got to have a deeper perspective on all of this. Every marriage has an opportunity to impact directly two to three generations. Do you really believe that? It's true. 
It's going to happen. Part of the purpose of marriage is to multiply a godly legacy. Now, as I say that, I, I want to just pause for a moment because I know statistically, and I know some of you who struggle with infertility as a married couple. Mark mentioned a little bit of that last week. They tell us one out of six couples struggles with infertility. And if that's where you are right now, I just want you to be alert to some lies that might get whispered in your ear. Lies like, well, God must love other people more than he loves us. It's a lie. Lies like, well, I guess God doesn't trust you to have children. It's a lie. Why does God allow some couples to struggle with infertility? I have no idea. It, to me, is a mystery. But if that's where you are right now, I have two pieces of advice I've developed over the decades. The first one is this. Keep practicing. You understand what I mean? Keep practicing because I've known other couples who experienced infertility and eventually God gave them the gift of children. Second piece of advice is prayerfully consider the options that you have before you. One option would be to volunteer to work with children and young people and therefore you can have a godly legacy that, that you leave because of that interaction. And, and Mark mentioned that last week with singles. That's one thing singles can do. Another possibility is to foster uh, care some children. We have multiple families at Wildwood that have been doing that over the years. And then the third potential option to prayerfully consider is that of adopting. A number of years ago, a good friend of mine, John O'Haver, was here. In fact, if you go into my office, John built the whole set of office furniture that I have in my office. And he got his PhD and went down, and he's a professor at the University of Mississippi. But I remember when John and Kevy were here, and they got married, and the consternation and the confusion and the hurt when they couldn't have children. In fact, they realized they would never be able to have children. So they prayerfully considered the options, and they decided to adopt. And they adopted a son, Hudson, and a daughter, Marin. And Hudson and Marin are 20 years old today. The home is the incubator of the next generation. When we talk about multiplying a godly legacy, you know, everybody receives a legacy, and everyone leaves a legacy. And for some people, the legacy that we received in the area of marriage wasn't very pretty. Maybe there was, a, there was battles that were going on in marriage. Maybe there was infidelity in marriage. Maybe there was multiple divorces in marriage. And so you say, wait a minute, I'm passing on a godly legacy. I didn't get one. One I got wasn't very pretty. One of my friends on the Family Life presentation team is a guy by the name of Jose Alvarez, Jose Alvarez was a professional baseball player and pitcher with the Atlanta Braves. And Jose, if he was here, he would tell you that the legacy that he received in marriage was not good at all. There was a history of infidelity, a history of broken relationships. There was multiple divorces. But you know what Jose said? He said, you know what I want to be? I want to be the cycle breaker in my family. And every couple has an opportunity to be a cycle breaker and a legacy maker because all marriages are influential. And I want to just remind you that kids absorb far more than we can imagine. We have an opportunity not only to talk to our children, we have an opportunity to mark our children. Let me ask you this question. If you have children or you're anticipating having children, 
What would you desire your children to grow to be like? Think about that for a moment. What would you desire your children to grow to be like? And then I would say, become what you want your children to become. And if we're going to multiply a godly legacy, there's another thing we need to do, men and women, and that is, I'm just going to be frank with you, we need to take the word divorce and permanently delete it from our vocabulary. That's not to be a weapon or a bat that we want to beat our spouse with when we're having some kind of a disagreement. Kids need security. Kids need to know that their parents are committed to one another. Why is it they need to know that? Because families all around them are falling apart. Kids in grade school know this. They hear about it at first grade, second grade, third grade. They're hearing about parents whose marriages and families are falling apart. We're better to learn about commitment and trust and forgiveness and humility and endurance than in a family with a marriage that is secure. Now, we understand where we're at today. We have people at Wildwood, some dear, dear folks, and they're here, and they are remarried people. They have a step family. We're glad that they're here. You know, you can't undo what's already been done. But if you're in a remarried situation and you're in a step family situation, what you can do is maximize that relationship for God's glory. And there's some resources out there that can help. There's a book I recommend by Ron Deal called The Smart Step Family. And if you are a step family or you're in a remarried environment, I would encourage you to get a hold of that tool. And there's a lot more tools that he has out there to help you. But we're talking about the bigger story of marriage. We're talking about living large in marriage. And that means, number one, we mirror God's image. Number two, we mutually complete one another. Number three, we multiply a godly legacy. But is that just easy skating to do those things? You say, man, that's, that's kind of hard to do. Why is it so hard? Well, there are three forces that are pushing against it. Force number one is the flesh. You know, flesh is me, 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 me. And then you have the force of the world system. The world system is pushing against us. The world system is whispering in our ear, You deserve to be happy. Looking out for number one is the most important thing you can do. And then we have the force of Satan himself. By the way, Satan means adversary. He's an adversary against what? God's purposes for marriage. He wants you and he wants me to be pawns in his plan to be an adversary to everything God wants to accomplish. You know, another name for Satan in the Bible is destroyer. I always like to remember that one because that's what he likes to do. Destroy lives, destroy marriages, and destroy families. He likes to step forward and say, you don't really need God. You don't need to listen to God. You go do your thing. That's exactly what he started saying way back in Genesis chapter 3. What God says to us with these three forces pushing against us is don't cave to those forces. Don't capitulate to them. I have provided you the resources you need for victory. It's found in the gospel message of transformation. It's found in the truth of the word of God. It's found in the person of the Holy Spirit who resides in you when you believe and trust in Christ. And it's found in the church family. 
that can be here to help us in our time of need. Living large in marriage means that we have been called to be a visual aid, a living picture showing off the heart of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So what's the bottom line in all of this? Well, I think C.J. Mahaney has put the bottom line very clearly. He says this, the key question is this, will we approach marriage from a God-centered view or a man-centered view? In a man-centered view, we will maintain our marriage, here comes the key phrase, as long as our earthly comforts, desires, and expectations are met. That's the small story. In a God-centered view, we preserve our marriage because it brings glory to God and points a sinful world to the reconciling creator. That's a bigger story. That's living large in marriage. Now, I would like to suggest a life response tool to all of us, a resource. It's another book written by Gary Thomas. It's entitled A Lifelong Love. Listen to the subtitle of this book. How to have intimacy, friendship, and purpose in your marriage. Anyone interested in those things? Well, there's a biblical roadmap that he has written in this book, A Lifelong Love. This book is one that we recommend at the weekend to remember. There's a lot of depth to it. If you get that tool, I suggest that you read it carefully and apply it generously. Also, you can go to our website, wildwoodchurch.org slash marriage, and you'll learn about an event coming up the first weekend in April that would be another resource. Let's pray together. Father, as we talk about marriage, my mind always goes back to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 13 and verse 4. It says there, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And that's our call individually. That's our call as couples. That's our call as a church family. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And Father, we admit very openly that we've all fumbled the ball in our marriages. Some of us have fumbled it to the point that marriage is dissolved, whether by our own choice or against our own choice. But just like in a football game, if we make an error, what we should do next is get back in the game and run the next play. We all have an opportunity to be cycle breakers and legacy makers for the glory of God. We pray that that would be so. In the name of Jesus, amen.